Welcome to HSDF the Podcast, a collection of policy discussions on government technology and homeland security brought to you by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. Today's program is the first in a two-part series that features U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens and former CBP Commissioner David Aguilar discussing border security threats and requirements. In this episode, Chief Owens outlines his top border challenges and priorities for 2024. This discussion took place at the annual HSDF Border Security Symposium in Washington, D.C. on December 12, 2023. Well, Chief, again, thanks for being here with us. Really appreciate it. It's always an honor to have you here. And I want to repeat that the complexity, the, uh, the difficulties of the job that the chief does are just that. Not only important, but difficult, complex, and uh, <laughs> very different from where we feel very comfortable operating in the field versus operating up here. And you'll get a sense of that as we move on this morning. So, Chief, why, why don't we begin by you kind of opening up with giving us a state of the border. What your thoughts are on what's happening today uh, to kind of start us off a little bit. Well, thank you, Chief. And so uh, you, you guys heard that uh, that uh, Chief Aguilar was a former acting commissioner of CBP, but uh, to those of us that uh, that grew up with him as the chief, he will always be chief. So that's why uh, it's a title that he carries with him into retirement. And it's somebody that uh, that I looked up to a lot uh, coming up. So to have the chance to sit here with him as peers is a little unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> For but, me. Uh, <laughs> but it also brings to light uh, an important fact about us as an organization. So Relatively speaking, not just the Border Patrol as it is today, but CBP and the Department of Homeland Security are young agencies compared to all the others, the the other departments and the agencies that exist. And so in many ways, we're still finding our way, determining how we're going to be, who we're going to be. That's an exciting time to be part of any organization. And I think CBP is uh, is one of those that uh, uh, we didn't realize what we had initially. And what it's becoming is something that uh, that's, that's really amazing. If you can imagine an organization, an agency that is not just responsible for keeping this country, its people, and our way of life safe at the border and beyond, but also facilitating all lawful trade and travel for the entire country, the second largest revenue generator for uh, for the entire nation behind the IRS. And I'd like to say we're probably more well-liked than the IRS. <laughs> so uh, when we all came together to form these legacy agencies, came together to form what is today CDP, everybody had a very defined lane, a very defined role that we were going to accomplish. And today, in a good way, those lines are starting to blur. Those lines are starting to come together, and we're starting to see that legacy piece drop away, fall away. And you have people that uh, that are part of CBP today that, that know nothing of the legacy agencies that, uh, as, as they used to exist. That's a very good thing for us and the mission that we're trying to accomplish. The state of the border compared to when I started and I see Sal Zamora back there and I see uh, there's, there's a number of faces here, uh, Chief Aguilar, that uh, when we went out and did this job, immigration and narcotics was pretty much all we focused on. We were responsible for anything and everything that came in between the ports of entry illegally. And if uh, if you came in, if you came into contact with somebody wearing a green uniform, it was probably because you did something wrong. Our agency was largely unknown. And, uh, you, people had heard of the Border Patrol, maybe didn't really understood understand what we 
what we did or who we are, that all changed post 9-11. And our mission actually uh, took a pivot and it went from one of just immigration to now we're looking for serious threats in the terrorism realm. Now we're looking for uh, serious threats in TCOs and this organization that, uh, that, that are our adversaries. And that's something that a lot of people don't, uh, or they take for granted. It's not the flow. It's not the migrants or uh, the people coming across that represent the adversaries to the Border Patrol or CDP. It is the people that orchestrated. It's the transnational criminal organizations. It's the cartels. It's the smugglers. It's the facilitators of that flow. That's who we see as our adversary. And whereas back in the day, what we saw was largely the, uh, the economic migration from countries like Mexico or the Northern Triangle, and they would come in, they would work seasonal, and they would send remittance payments back home, and, they would, uh, and they'd go home for the holidays and then try again. We were very busy during our time, San Diego and the Rio Grande Valley. We were catching you know hundreds, if not uh, thousands of people per shift as well. But it was a very different dynamic because processing was very easy. There was really one pathway that was used. It was a voluntary return. Everybody went back to Mexico and generally they turned right around and tried again. And we would see them sometimes a couple, three times per shift until we quit seeing them. That's not the case today. Today, every single year, we are catching people from between 100 and 120 countries from all over the world. Processing these individuals is so much more complex. There is no real voluntary return. The pathways that we have to use are under scrutiny. It takes anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours to process one case, whereas before it may take just a matter of minutes. And so even though the numbers have been this high in times past, the way that we deal with that flow is so much more complex. That's That brings the need for... <laughs> being able to do these pathways faster so that we can get back to the business of the border security mission. What I like to tell people, our job over the years has become a bifurcated one. We have the migration flow that is unfortunately coming between the ports of entry. Those that want to come into this country and make this place their home, they need to have pathways so that they can do it lawfully and safely. We need to be able to take them out of the hands of the criminals and smugglers and allow them to apply for admission and enter through our front door, which are the ports of interest. And the reason why that matters to the United States Border Patrol is because as long as they are not, they are coming between the ports of entry, and that forces us to address that flow. And what that does is takes us off of the border security mission. And make no mistake about it, our adversaries, those TCOs, those criminals, those smugglers, are taking advantage of that every single day to cross other things in areas where they now know that we are not. That's our mission in a nutshell. The other bifurcation is the national security or the border security mission. And I feel like that that gets lost in the narrative sometimes because we start talking about all we talk about is that flow. If you turn on the news right now and you see anybody covering the situation on the border, what do you see? Eagle Pass, Lukeville, and the thousands of migrants that are coming across in those areas. Well, that's important, but not because of what they may say on the, on the, on the, in the media but because of what it represents for us on the border security side. They're taking us off of task. For the smugglers, for the cartels, for the criminals, it is a money-making opportunity every step of the way. Now, I came from Del Rio sector before I assumed this job, and so I know this number. The weekly illicit revenue just for human smuggling in one week in one sector of nine along the southwest border 
for just human smuggling was in excess of $35 million. Now, if you do the math, and I'm from Oklahoma, so forgive me if I'm wrong, about $1.5 billion a year just in one sector and just off of human smuggling. We're not talking about narcotics. We're not talking about bulk cash. We're not talking about special interest migrants, any of the other money-making uh, pathways that these smugglers have. And we're not talking about the, the revenue that's being generated in sectors like San Diego, RGV, Laredo, Tucson. It is a huge money-making opportunity. And that money funnels right back into destabilizing the communities on the south side of the border in Mexico and to fight us. That's the situation on the border as it is today. So... Starting there, Chief, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is what's going to happen when this country again gets back to asking the Border Patrol to taking back the border. Um, Right now, the pathways, as you described them, are in very defined areas of operation, urban areas of operation for all practical purposes. But as, as you and I know, the Border Patrol operates in urban, rural, and remote areas of operation. When we start going back to the border, to basically conduct border patrol operations as as we knew them, the diffusion of the flows are going to be throughout in those rural and remote areas of operations. We talked earlier uh, some of the challenges that that uh, that we had when we were in the field are still there. The so-called uh, dark areas where we have no communications. Communications now for industry has gone from just voice communication to voice, video, and data which becomes critically important once you are able to add in the AI and ML. Where do you see the Border Patrol going in that communications requirements that we have? And what do you think industry needs to hear on those challenges continue today? So it's funny, anytime I get asked, I try and uh, put things very succinctly, kind of the, uh, the elevator pitch, so to speak. Two things are a priority for me at the highest level. Number one, Does it help my men and women do their job better and more efficiently? Number two, does it help them get home safe at the end of every shift? If the answer is yes to one or both of those, then I'm interested. So when we talk about the communications piece, and David and I were talking about it in the green room earlier, we never imagined or envisioned a world where the migrants would be chasing the border patrol agents to turn themselves in. It's just antithetical to everything that we've ever known. We're here today, but we don't expect that situation to exist. One of the uh, years from now, one of these days, the situation will go back to the way that it was before, where people that are breaking the law are trying to evade capture from law enforcement because there is a consequence for breaking the law. When that happens, our men and women will find themselves once again back out in those remote locations dealing with the same flow, but it's a flow that is trying to evade capture. And unlike what uh, we talked about this before, also, Unlike what you see on TV and what Hollywood portrays, we don't have the ability to vector in satellites and use, uh, you know, uh, on on a dime and and have cameras secretly posted all throughout the, uh, you know, the the border. There are still today, despite the leaps and bounds forward in in cell phone communications and, and satellite communications, so many areas of the border that don't have dependable cell phone coverage, that don't have effective radio coverage that are largely unmonitored. We don't have cameras and sensor technology throughout the entirety of the almost 2,000 miles of U.S. border with Mexico, the more than 5,000 miles of U.S. border with Canada. We're not even talking about Alaska. That's a whole different discussion. The thousands upon thousands of miles of coastal borders that we have, everybody focuses on 
just the border with Mexico, but we have to remember the border environment represents so much more. I can tell you when I was in Laredo, I used to say this number a lot. We had at one time 170 miles of border, and this is, this is an urban border area comparatively. Mm-hmm. At any given time, despite the fact that you have one of the largest trade zones in the world there, I could get persistent surveillance on about 30% of that 170 miles. The unknown is very real. You see on the news, we talk about the known gotaways. We want to make sure that we're always given accurate information about what we're seeing. And so all we can talk about is what we, what we know. So we know the flow that we actually apprehend, and we know the flow that we're able to, in some ways, detect, but we couldn't get to. And then we get into the whole tip of the iceberg theory. What's getting away that we're not seeing? If you know that all you need to do is turn yourself in, go through one of the pathways that are established, and in all likelihood, be released at least for a period of time before your court date, what possible reason would you have for trying to put your life at risk and evade capture for some of the most remote and austere terrain on the planet? Could it be that those are the individuals that we need to be worried about? Could it be those are the individuals that have the criminal backgrounds, that have the bad intent? Those are the individuals that my men and women are going to find themselves encountering as they get out there into those remote areas more and more. And so going back to the original question, simple communications, dependable, effective communications to keep them safe, the access to the information and the data so they know who's in front of them is going to be everything to us. Yeah. Continuing that thread there, knowing who's in front of them, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, we had uh, OIT, Assistant Commissioner, and the CTO for CBP. We talked about edge computing, basically having whether it's a rural or remote areas of operation, having that information at their, at their fingertips. ATAC now is pretty much prevalent throughout the Border Patrol. Still some growth to do there. But what else would you say is going to be, what, what translates to that mobile edge computing that uh, we need? So a couple of things. First off, so most of you that have been in the game for a while, you remember we have something, uh, you know, we have simple cameras and scope trucks. And mm-hmm. when we would go out there and operate them, they were the simple Atari joysticks. And then a few years later as a pack, I saw they had the, uh, the Game Boy controllers, you know, which took me out of the equation. I couldn't. You know. <laughs> now, uh, everything is done on this. You know, I, I remember going into my, uh, my son's room. He's in the Navy now. And he had a big 42-inch TV that was turned off and dark in his room. He's watching YouTube videos on this little phone. They get all of their information and news. And I say that because that's the generation that's wearing this uniform today. That's what they know. That's what they understand. And it's, it's on us if we can't figure that out and, and make the technology accessible accordingly. So the ATAC, that, uh, that platform is what's working really well for them right now. It's how do we make that better? How do we bring more to them on these devices? Thank you for tuning in. You can follow HSDF the podcast on any major podcast platform. Visit hsdf.org to learn more about the Homeland Security and Defense Forum.